0: Welcome to the Public Morality. Should Washington, D.C. become the nation's 51st state? At present, Washingtonians have no federal representation in the House of Representatives, though D.C. is larger population-wise than several states. It is a paradoxical conundrum that the nation's capital is the only American jurisdiction whose residents do not have full voting rights and where the Congress of the United States can interfere at will with their local jurisdiction. No matter how one feels about the prospects of the statehood question, the full benefits of the franchise have been denied to more than 700,000 inhabitants of the nation's capital. To discuss D.C. statehood, I'm joined by Georgetown Law Professors Sheila Foster and Meryl Chertoff. Professor Foster is the Scott K. Ginsburg Professor of Urban Law and Policy at Georgetown University. She holds joint appointments with Georgetown Law School and the McCourt School of Public Policy. She is faculty director of the Georgetown Project on State and Local Government Policy and Law. Professor Meryl Chertoff is the Executive Director of Georgetown Project on State and Local Government Policy and Law and an adjunct professor at the Georgetown School of Law. Professors Sheila Foster and Meryl Chertoff, welcome to The Public Morality.
1: Thank you for having us. Mm. Thanks very much. Mm.
0: I, let's begin with what each of you uh uh, uh, see as the fundamental justification for DC statehood. I know you've outlined several persuasive arguments in my view of your your, your recent piece for The Hill. But what's uh, fundamental for each of you? And I'll start with uh, Professor Foster.
2: Sure.
1: For me, it's um, you know the oft-repeated phrase, um, you know, no taxation without representation. It's about equal citizenship. Um, in this case, why should district residents? assume all the obligations of citizenship, you know, D.C. residents pay the highest per capita income taxes in the nation, for instance, but not have the representation in the body to whom they send those taxes? Um, Why shouldn't they have representation on matters uh, that are voted on in Congress, even on matters that affect entirely local interests? Um, And so, as we say in our piece, you know, the senators and House members fly back and forth to D.C. Um, and are the voices for their constituents, but who speaks for the people in the neighborhoods in Washington and the people that are staffing their offices? Um, and what about the staff members themselves and the employees and residents of the 120 neighborhoods of D.C.? So for me, it's about equal citizenship and uh, and not just the obligations of that uh, citizenship, but the representation that uh, everyone Uh, deserves. Mm.
0: Professor Chernoff, same question.
2: Well, there are uh, 700,000 people plus who live in the district, and over 600,000 of those are full-time residents. Um, That's more than the number of people who lived in Hawaii uh, at the time that it was admitted to uh, the U.S. as a state. Um, And there are people who talk about, well, D.C. now has home rule, but that notion of home rule is deceptive. Uh, because under the District Act, Congress can uh, take action which overturns any act which is taken by the D.C. City Council and the mayor. So it, it's, a, it's deceptive to say that there's any form of meaningful home rule because what, what the Congress has given it can take, and take away at any moment. Uh, in addition, there have been times that uh, members of Congress have used the district as a laboratory, um, to workshop ideas that they have, things that they wouldn't be able to accomplish in their own states. They've used D.C. as a, as a workshop for, for example, uh, the use of school vouchers uh, or uh, changing what D.C. residents wanted in terms of gun control and loosening gun control rules. So all of those are things that would have to be done by popular vote in their home states but when it comes to D.C., members of Congress can can essentially just shove the district around. And that that seems terribly unfair and undemocratic. And uh, when you look at the world, we are the only democratically uh, democratic country in the world where the Capitol, uh residents don't have a vote.
0: Hmm. Uh, st- staying with you, uh, Professor Chertoff, Um uh, So would D.C. statehood also include, in addition to including a voting member of the House and two senators, would would that also include a governor and a state legislature? What would that look like in your view?
2: Well, we really don't know because that's something that would have to uh, be carried out by a commission which would be charged with developing uh, the government. So so that is an, an open question. Um, obviously, now there's a mayor uh, and there's a district council, 13-member district council. That would clearly change with DC statehood. There would be an expansion uh, of government, uh, but w- exactly what the parameters that would look like uh, are are unclear. And Professor Foster, do you have have some views on that as well?
1: Yeah, I do think it's unclear. And um, the commission that is going to be established as part of uh, the bill that's now pending in Congress um, will determine that um but i think it's a very good question right if uh that's uh one of the questions that i've had right when i think about dc statehood is uh the design of this state and how it could mirror other states including having a governor uh and the city council being a kind uh, um transforming into a legislative body but we don't know i mean i have my ideas and others have their ideas but But the fact is, it's uh, to be determined.
0: Uh, Before we go any further, um, and we can start with you, uh, Professor Foster, before we go any further, to to the best of your knowledge, what is uh, uh, House Bill 51? Um, Is it calling for statehood? Is it calling for a committee? What exactly is that legislation designed to do, in your view?
1: Sure. Well, it's designed to uh, repeal, for instance, the 23rd Amendment, which gave D.C. the right to vote for president and electors and to replace it with full statehood. Um, it um, will carve out um, uh, the Douglas Commonwealth um, from the, the district now. Um, and, and that's named for the former um or um, the famed abolitionist and uh, D.C. resident Frederick uh, Douglass. And so that would be the state. And there would be a federal enclave that's carved out that includes the Capitol Hill and the area around the White House and various buildings that are named and areas that are specifically named in the act. And then, of course, it would, again, appoint um, a body that would decide on the form that statehood would assume. And I'll I'll throw this to you. So I don't know Professor Chertoff. well I have, I have another
0: I have another question for yeah. Professor Churchoff and she can just add in her answer. In the in the carve out uh, repealing the 23rd amendment, I can see constitutional scholars just coming off the ceiling with the notion of uh, a constitutional amendment being repealed by a by by a vote in Congress. So that raises issues of constitutionality, does it not?
2: I don't think it does. It would the the creation of the state would move the 23rd amendment. Um there there the the structure that the 23rd amendment was designed to um to give the votes to would no longer exist and so it would be mooted. Um that's that's the position that legal scholars have taken on this. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so, you know, and so you, you, you've touched on it already. So in 1964 was, was the first time the District of Columbia voted for president um, and represented the Electoral College. So uh, about a decade later is when you was the first municipal elections. Why, uh, Professor Foster, I'll start with you. Why, why, in your view, is the notion of federal representation somehow treated it, my words at anathema?
1: Well, I think that there are many reasons that people have given, frankly, over time, right? Uh, going all the way back to the founding for, you know, why it should be just a capital enclave or a federal enclave or something similar, even as the district has grown in population and also in terms of its its own function, right? Um, and who lives there, right? Why it shouldn't have full representation. I mean, in our piece in the Hill, we try to take down some of those myths, but I think there are two things that are worth focusing on. Right. Um, one is um, that given that, and professor Chertoff referred to this earlier, right. Given that the district has home rule, it has a mayor, it has council. Um, then I think there are a lot of people that wonder what more, right. Power does it need? Why does it need representation um, and Uh, And the second, I think, uh, relates to the partisan political question, right? As we become more partisan um, in our politics and divided, right, Uh, there is this fear that um that allocating uh two uh, senators and another representative to the district would shift the balance of power in, in the favor in the democrats favor so uh so i think a lot of this is about partisanship on the first point i mean i would just add to what professor Chertoff said before that home rule is just not sufficient right the 10th amendment protects states by giving them power not specifically reserved to the federal government The district does not get this protection. Um, So anything the district is empowered to do can be taken away by the federal government. And giving it more autonomy, even strengthening home rule, is not sufficient. And there are two reasons. Right. First, home rule would have to not just offer the district initiative power, the power to initiate laws and policies, which it can do now, but to offer it significant immunity power from federal intervention and preemption. And I think that um, that um, uh, secondly, (laughs) if you're going to do that, you might as well just treat it like a state because that because that's the protection that states give.
2: So I'll stop there.
0: Professor Chertoff, anything you'd like to add to that?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, when when arguments are made as to why D.C. doesn't require statehood, one of the arguments that's made is, well, D.C., the people who live in D.C. have proximity to power. Uh, a lot of D.C. residents work in federal government, although that is much less true than it used to be. And actually, the majority of people in D.C. now don't work in federal government. Uh, but if you look at both northern Virginia and Maryland, There are a lot of people in uh, both of those areas who also work in the district and work in government. They have proximity to power and yet they are represented by two senators and members of Congress. So DC is being treated certainly less well than our two surrounding neighbors. So again, there's another argument that doesn't hold any water. Um, I'd also add to something that Professor Foster said, just the question of population growth. D.C. in the 18th century had about 15,000 residents. There's been a massive explosion in in its population, Um, and the the numbers just, uh, you know, amplify the degree of the injustice.
0: Professor Chernoff, I will stay with you. Uh, One of the contrarian arguments against statehood holds that the District of Columbia uh, is a federal enclave, and as such— it would be imprudent to grant it to additional senators. How do you respond to that argument?
2: Well, what the the federal enclave is going to continue to exist under HR fifty one. The federal enclave is going to be that area which contains the White House, the Capitol, uh, key federal buildings, and uh, the only people who live there are the first family. Um, so there is some question about those three electoral votes, and and you know that that that. Uh, is the question you raised with respect to the 23rd Amendment. But all the surrounding neighborhoods are where the the people of D.C. live. And that that would be treated like any other state entity. Professor
0: Frost, anything you'd like to add?
2: Yeah, I mean, so the argument, so the functional equivalent
1: of the federal enclave argument is, is an argument that D.C. is a company town and the company is the federal government, right? And this just doesn't hold up factually anymore. D.C. is clearly more than a federal enclave. Uh, um enclave and the part that is, right, can be carved out and remain as a federal enclave, as Professor Chertoff said. Um, and so the bill proposes to do that while also recognizing the citizenship rights of the 700 residents that live in a geographic area that has, again, over 700,000, but also has its own you know, has uh, its own distinct neighborhoods, cultural institutions, sports facilities, and an economy larger than other than some other existing states. Um, so I think just factually, right, this idea of the federal enclave just doesn't hold up. I mean, it's a world-class city right now with an identity clearly separate from the federal government. It's not simply a place where federal employees and those connected to the federal government.
0: Uh, me if I'm wrong. also
1: if, I'm so if
2: you if you look at I'm sorry, if you look at the uh, the criteria that have been traditionally applied for statehood, there are three elements to the criteria. Um, one is does the uh, does the area have democratic governance? And clearly d c is committed to democratic governance. Um, is there a desire for admission? And um, the repeated polling has shown that people in D.C. want to be a state. Most recently, 86 percent of people polled in D.C. wanted to be a state. And then the question of size and income, and Professor, Chertoff, uh, me, Professor Foster has spoken um, about uh, D.C. having the highest per capita GDP, highest number of taxes paid, and the, the large size of uh, D.C. is bigger than uh, Wyoming, in, in terms of population, bigger than Vermont in terms of population, almost as large as Alaska and North Dakota. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of the question of how much federal land is there, there's more federal land in Nevada. There's more federal land in California. And again, those are places that have two senators and have members of the House.
0: Professor Sheriff, I'm going to stay with you. Uh, we, we sort of touched that, we, we sort of, you've, you, you've touched on this uh, already to some degree. Uh, when you couple the 23rd Amendment, does statehood, in addition to the 23rd Amendment, does statehood w- w- uh, require a, a, a constitutional amendment? How, uh, w- how does that, how does that work?
2: Well, statehood, as this bill envisions it, would not require a constitutional amendment. This was Eleanor Holmes Norton, who is the delegate, the non-voting delegate, has come up with a brilliant solution in carving out the federal enclave. If if the um, proposed state still contained the federal enclave, I would agree that at that point, a constitutional amendment would be required. But by carving out the federal enclave, that eliminates the need to have a a constitutional amendment. Um, And, you know, that it's a a clean solution to that constitutional and legal problem.
0: Um, Similar question for you, Professor Frost, but but I'd like to add uh, with you, uh, what would prohibit D.C. either becoming part of Southern Maryland or Northern Virginia?
1: Well, you know, um, there... Uh the uh, article Four, you know, section three you, uh, um, is one of the relevant um, parts of the constitution that we look to, and that's the admissions clause, right? It says new states may be admitted uh, uh, by Congress, right? But no new state shall be formed or, or, or erected within the jurisdiction of any other state, nor any state be formed by the junction of two or more states or parts of states without the consent of the legislature's concerned. So. Clearly, you know Congress can do this, um, but the question is: Is it wise to do it, and is this the is this the right uh, path uh, to recognize the citizenship rights of uh, the current um, residents of D.C.? So um, I think, unless Professor Chertoff agrees, right, I think that. Um, this is uh, more of a policy than a constitutional question. Mm -hmm. And the policy question is what's been debated. I think the fact that D.C. is a self-governing entity right now, it's got its own policies. Uh, Sometimes they're um, aligned with its two neighboring states and sometimes it's not. I mean, by that kind of logic, um, if you look at a, a number of metro areas, you could start carving out, right, large parts of, let's say, you know, New York. New York's city, why not become a part of New Jersey? That to me just doesn't seem to address the fundamental, um, frankly, constitutional, but also, um, policy issue here. And that is enfranchisement of residents and citizens that already function or are already functionally a state in terms of the economic and political, and I think legal, um, uh, uh, functioning of the district.
2: Professor- so I don't
1: know if Professor Chertoff has more to add at that.
2: Well, I I would just add that this is, you're you're asking the question about retrocession, right? And so retrocession is the idea that you would join another state. And retrocession actually occurred with um, the city of Alexandria, which originally was part of the district and then became part of Virginia. Uh, And that required both the people of Alexandria saying that they wanted, but also the people of Virginia. When retrocession has been proposed with respect to D.C., at this point, it would be retrocession to Maryland. And that would require the consent of the people of Maryland, as well as the people of D.C., as well as Congress. And it's completely unclear whether Maryland wants all of the the, uh, residents of D.C. So that adds a layer of complexity and yet another obstacle self-determination, in addition to it being a form of voter dilution for the people of D.C. who would then become voters in Maryland if that were to happen. So uh, again, uh, a far better solution to this would be D.C. statehood, um, and D.C. has its own unique culture and, and as Professor Foster has said, um, you know, and its own unique uh, identity and should be its own state.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'll be with you, uh, Professor Chertoff. Um, what about the, 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 another argument that, that I've heard, and I'm, I'm sure I'm sure two of you have heard this as well, uh, would, would be that DC would affect be the nation's only uh, city state and would therefore lack the resources that other states share in common. How, how do you respond to a criticism like that?
2: I think the, on the question of size, I mean, there are um, a number of very small states. Rhode Island is a very small state. Delaware is a very small state. Um, they are state, and they, in, in terms of their size, they're very small. Um, D.C. Would, is very small as well, but also is very densely populated. Um so, you know, I, I don't really see any difference between D.C. as an entity as opposed to other small states. But the question of being a city state, it, it, it's a good question. There are city states around the world. Professor Foster actually has, has worked with city states. Singapore is a city state. Um, there, there are other examples.
0: The Vatican, would that
2: count? <laughs> a spiritual component to it. There are other city-states. Um, that's that's not something that... Yes, it does. The, the Vatican, it is. It is a city-state. Uh, Professor Foster, uh, you, you have worked... I mean, yeah, so states.
1: there are, there, there, I think, only really a handful. I mean, Singapore is one Vatican, and, and I think Monaco is another. Um, um, but on the question of whether... Uh, you mentioned whether D.C. could support itself. I mean, right now, D.C. is a donor state, right? I mean, it gives it donates more taxes than it spends. into if you set aside federal uh, salaries that are paid to government workers in DC um, so DC more than pulls its weight, right. And it, it's, it balances it, its own budget, right. Um, it's uh, they pay, as we said before, the highest per capita income taxes, the GDP uh, per capita is more than any other state. So, I don't understand that argument as a reason to, again, number one, not enfranchise the citizens, but also not recognize um, whether you call it a city state or simply a state, a state that functions like a state in, in our constitutional structure, right? Cities are not in the constitution. States are right. And states. So DC is already a kind of an outlier <laughs> constitutionally. Uh, so states are, <laughs> um, the power goes to the state except for those reserved for the federal government, right? And so a city state would be um, uh, uh, not within our constitutional tradition, actually, notwithstanding the presence of other city states around the world.
2: Hmm. Almost th- and also, right. the question let me just also get to the question of autonomy and traditional state functions. Um, and I've heard to this a little bit before, but this is really important. Um, D.C. has wanted to do a number of things over the years that the federal government has um, not allowed it to do. Uh, It has uh, wanted to do needle exchange. Um, There have been questions about reproductive rights, Uh, the question of a commuter tax, which is really important, right? So lots of people uh, who work in D.C. live in Maryland and Virginia. Many states that have that type of arrangement where there are a lot of people who are commuting into the city, they impose commuter taxes. DC could use that money. It is not allowed to raise funds in terms of the commuter tax. Um, So all of these are aspects of autonomy. And another uh, good example, um, of course, is the ability to police itself. And there are some significant restrictions that we have just seen over the past year And the ability of D.C. to protect itself in a situation where there is unrest. And and all of that has to do with the fact that it is not a state and does not have that degree of autonomy.
0: Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna come to that in just a second. I'm gonna because I'm gonna specifically want to talk about January sixth um, in relation to this whole conversation that we're having, talking with uh, professors uh, Georgetown Law professors uh, Sheila Foster and Meryl Chertoff about DC statehood based on a piece they recently wrote uh, uh, on, that appears right now on the, in the Hill, uh, Professor Foster. It's, it seems to me one of the ongoing challenges that we have, uh, not just on this issue, but with with America in general, is the incongruence between the origins of something and then the present moment. What Washington, D.C. has become most likely exceeds the vision of Hamilton, Jefferson, and Madison, who compri- who, comp- who was part of the Compromise of 1790. But explain why the original intent of D.C. does not justify being hamstrung by the reality of the moment
1: so yeah that's a good question I mean Madison one of the founders argued in the Federalist papers that the federal government um, you know should be in control of the nation's capital to maintain uh, uh, the the policies that fit you know federal lawmakers uh, desires and needs uh, he was particularly concerned that a single state could impose control over Congress by managing its security needs and other accommodations I mean at that time, D.C. had um, uh, just a few thousand residents, not the 700,000, over 700,000 that it does today. So it's not clear to me that um, the framers intended or even foresaw that D.C. would grow into, again, the independent um, geographical unit and governing unit and cultural um, (laughs) uh, force and economic force that it is today. Um, a former D.C. Councilwoman, Mary Che, wrote in a 2014 article uh, that uh, she says, and I think she's right, right, that it's incongruous to think that the framers, having just fought a war to ensure that there would be no taxation without representation, would enshrine in the Constitution the same disability on such a significant population of their own countrymen. So um, I don't think, as in other parts of the constitution. And when we talk about various kinds of rights and right, whether they were written into the constitution or not, I don't think we're hamstrung right by, uh, by whatever vision we think Hamilton, uh, Jefferson and Madison had and whatever vision and intent they did have, um, is clearly not in line with the reality of today. And I think that we should uh, be rooted in the reality of today and how DC has evolved and how the laws
2: have evolved, including the 23rd Amendment.
0: Mm-hmm. Professor Chertoff, any thoughts?
2: Well, um, I, you know, I, I would follow up and then I would hand back to Professor Foster that um, in the 19th century, um, the surrounding community was largely African American. And there's clearly an element of race. That uh, was at play in terms of the attitude towards the residents of D.C., um, and that is an enforced, an unfortunate uh, residue of, of a very uh, difficult and painful history.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's some evidence that in the 1870s, Congress stripped D.C. of its, uh, you know, local representation because white congressmen didn't want newly enfranchised black men running uh, the nation's capital. And so, I think that that history um is there. And also if we think about the current moment, you know, DC is uh still over 40% um, uh, black. Um it's a plurality black uh city. Uh it used to be more. Uh but you've got to see this within the context of um you know voting rights uh and civil rights and black representation and vote dilution, right? I mean right now we in this country uh, uh, systematically right, overrepresent white voters um, in the Electoral College and in Congress um, at the expense of black voters. Uh, there's not another state that's a, a plurality black state, I don't think. Um, and the average black American voting power is still a fraction of uh, what the average white American voting power is. Um, uh, uh so, and of course, as for other groups, Asians and Latinx groups, uh, I think the same uh, can be said about the uh, 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 their percentage of voting power as uh, still behind uh, tragically than uh, whites in this country. So the structure I think of the United States um, Senate, so we have to see this within the structure of our democracy, United States uh, Senate and the history of black disenfranchisement in today's, Inequality in uh, in voting representation and voting rights, and and against the backdrop of the continued efforts to dilute the black vote. So I think this is important. If Congress can do this right, um, this can really uh, crack or put a crack, I think, in um, what is still a very problematic um, foundation uh, of our country uh, disenfranchising. Black voters, hmm. well,
0: Professor Foster, I'm going to stay with you uh, in the piece that uh, you and Professor Chertoff authored for The Hill. You discussed the events of January 6 that, that that played a role uh, in strengthening the argument for statehood. Could you explain that?
1: Yeah, I'm going to punt this to Professor Chertoff actually, uh, because this is really um, her um, her area of expertise. Uh, but as we say in the piece, that on January 6th, the mayor of Washington D.C. was unable to activate the D.C. National Guard without the president's consent—a power that's delegated to the Secretary of Army um, of the Army—and that that is one of the kind of inflection moments we think that really do um, focus us and bring to bear the strength um, of the argument for why DC should have statehood. But I'll pass it over to Professor Chertoff.
2: Well, everything that Professor Foster has said is correct about that, but we can take it even further back and we can take it back to the summer uh, during the first amendment protest and at what was na- then renamed Black Lives Matter Plaza, which was the area behind Lafayette Park on DC property. Um, And um, you will recall there was a terrible incident where um, President Trump wanted to have a photo opportunity in front of uh, St. John's, which is a a church that presidents have historically worshipped at Um, this goes back for a hundred years and the area was cleared uh, by by using uh, tear gas and and other things against the people who were peacefully protesting on BLM Plaza. Um, And it was very difficult uh, for Mayor Bowser to protect the folks who were there uh, because uh, the the federal government threatened to federalize the DC MPD, the the Metropolitan Police Department, uh, which is within their power. So they could, they, the federal government could actually federalize and thereby neutralize the MPD, which was there primarily to protect the people who were engaging in First Amendment protected protests. And they really had set up uh, what could have been a confrontation between MPD and the federal public safety officers who are in charge of protecting the White House and the area in Lafayette Park, uh, the park police who protect uh, Lafayette Park. Um, and so when, when we got to January 6th, um, Mayor Bowser was in a very difficult position uh, because there was that threat of federalizing the MPD. There was the inability of MPD to actually go up to Capitol Hill and to have any role. Um, and when she tried to activate the EMAC, which is the Emergency Management Compact which would have allowed her to bring National Guard in from Maryland, she got slow rolled by the Pentagon. So um, the, the D.C. was in a position where um, they had limited MPD available to them. Their call for mutual aid was being obstructed. They couldn't do anything on Capitol Hill itself. That was all a matter of the Capitol Police Um, And so the mayor was put in a position where she was not able to protect her own city. And that was a real inflection point. People looking at that from around the country had to see that the people of D.C., the residents of D.C. were being held hostage to a mob. And we were only fortunate that the destruction, which was absolutely horrible, was confined to the hill itself and didn't spill out into the larger community. And and I think that that's something that really is an inflection point with respect to this effort.
0: Well, well, Professor Chernoff, that that actually raises a, another question in my mind because uh, it, it really speaks to the unique relationship that the federal government has with the city of D.C. that the federal government does not have with any other state. Its ability to sort of... Uh, Ignore because the Tenth Amendment, as Professor Frost stated, doesn't exist. So they have they have a power with the residents of D.C. that they don't have anywhere else. Would that be accurate? Yes. How is that different from any other state?
2: So one thing that's being examined now is the specific question of those emergency powers. Um, and I think that the least that there's a separate bill in Congress now about that emergency powers. And I think that the least that will happen is that home rule will be expanded with respect to emergency powers. Uh, but again, that's, uh, in our view, that's, that's really not enough. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, I would just add, I mean, when I think about the relationship between the federal government, particularly regards to public safety issues, And other states and even cities is that, you know, think about the National Guard, right? I mean, if DC is its own state with the federal enclave uh, 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 carved out, I mean, why wouldn't we think about the federal government the way we think about its ability to send the National Guard or FEMA into states and cities uh, to respond to uh, various kinds of, you know, whether they're natural disaster crises or Uh, Or civic or civil crises, as in the busing uh, and civil rights crisis, the 60s, or even this summer, right, Uh, 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 during uh, protests in various cities. So um, I don't think that, yes, the proximity, I think that D.C. residents and neighborhoods have to federal buildings and the federal government. Clearly sets it apart, but I'm not sure that the other relationships that the federal government has with other states make it so unlike right um, those other states that uh, we should deny it um, the benefits of being a state right and enfranchise its citizens like other states are and give it representation in Congress like other states have. Uh, Professor
2: Foster, Francis- um, one oh, go one now. One analogy, sorry, one analogy, which is interesting, just an interesting bit of history. The Insurrection Act is always available to the federal government um, as a means of enforcing federal law. Uh, the Insurrection Act was something that Trump threatened to use in D.C. over the summer. But if you look back on when the Insurrection Act was actually invoked, uh, you can go back to Eisenhower and a Little Rock School desegregation. Um, And there there are a set of gates that the federal government has to go through and one is to ask the crowd to disperse Um, so uh, Eisenhower did that in 1956 and um, and did send in the National Guard, but that was That was subject to a set of requirements um, And where there was an insurrection where it was the uh, violation of a lawful order by a federal court and then the federal government steps in that authority is always available, but it is uh, subject to rule of law requirements. And one of the problems that occurred over the summer was that the federal government ignored those uh, those gates that are required so that power is exercised in a lawful manner. The problem is you can say, well, that was a one-off. It'll never happen again. Uh, what's unimaginable the first time no longer becomes unimaginable once it's occurred and and so this is our our concern is that having happened once it no longer is unimaginable
0: you know professor Chertoff says I will stay with you on this that I think if you uh I'm assuming if you ask most Americans how they felt about nearly three quarters of a million people being denied federal representation they would all be opposed to it uh at least I hope that's what they would say um Explain how much politics plays into prohibiting the 700,000 people of Washington D.C. from having the f- federal representation.
2: Well, you know, you 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 said something just now that I believe to be true of most people, but I worry. Uh, so a a elected member in Arizona said not long ago, "Well, the problem with the last election was that the wrong people voted." And um, there has been an ugly turn in American politics where the idea of voting is not that we want to expand voting and make it possible for as many people to vote as possible and to compete in the uh, realm of ideas and try to sell the best policies and the most innovation and what's going to advance people, but actually to, to cherry pick and to only have the people who we want to have voting as the voters. Um, and, and so that premise that you, know, you don't want to disenfranchise 700,000 people, I'm afraid, sadly, that I have to say that I'm not as confident as you are that people want to do the right thing here.
0: I did qualify by I saying I hope, but I take—I definitely take your point, Professor Foster. Anything you would like to add to that?
2: I mean, I think
1: that's right. It's sad but true, and um, it, it, it's back to the earlier discussion um, that it's not lost. I'm sh- sure on Congress, uh, men and women right now, and uh, senators that you know, DC is a historically black city, um, and that it is also a city. I might add. Uh, of, um, of other ethnic groups and of young people, right? And, and, and increasingly, these are uh, the folks that, um, that uh, some don't want to vote or at least to have easy and full access to the franchise uh, to vote. Um, and a lot of the bills that are happening or, or that are being introduced in various states across the country are evidence of this, so I'm afraid that this issue of DC statehood plays right into the politics of vote dilution and um, voting discrimination. Frankly,
0: um, now I'm I'm asking you uh, to 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 put down your, your your legal acumen and and put and assume the role as as party whip. Uh, are there uh, starting with you, Professor Foster? Are there the votes in the Senate and the House? for, uh, for uh, some version of House Bill 51?
1: In my view, yes, but are there enough votes to overcome the filibuster in the Senate? No. Um, so I think this um, issue, uh, as well as others, may depend
2: upon whether it's reformed or not.
0: Professor Chertoff.
2: Uh, I, I agree with Professor Foster. Um, I've seen some arguments that it is possible that DC statehood, because it's yes, no question, um, could be subject to an up or down vote um, and could be taken outside of filibuster rules. Uh, that would, uh, I guess, depend on uh, the interpretation of, of how the rules apply. Uh, I'm not that optimistic that it would be viewed as an exception, but I think it certainly it's certainly would be an argument worth making.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and finally, when, when you think about the arguments that, that, that you uh, put forth in your very uh, persuasive piece for the Hill, is statehood the only remedy to address the issues that the two of you raise, uh, Professor Chertoff?
2: I, I think it's the only way to address the threat of preemption of Congress uh, of, of the acts that are taken by DC local government. I think that, that that is the biggest problem that I see, as long as the district clause exists, that that is the biggest problem that cannot be ameliorated in any way short of statehood. So
0: so, so in your view... so. If DC, if the so, residents of DC had federal representation, there would still be myriad problems um, that you raise in your piece. Would that be correct?
2: If it had, I'm sorry. So, if, if, so if, if DC
0: residents had, you know, had the franchise for federal representation, there are still a number of problems that would be that are still unaddressed, which is still part of the piece that you wrote that that, that leads us to statehood. It was with that? That's what I'm asking.
2: That's correct. Yes, that would re- that would require statehood.
0: Okay. Professor Foster.
2: I,
1: yes, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, we haven't mentioned, but we did mention in the piece the inability of D.C. to control the composition, jurisdiction of its local courts, right, um, and other issues that um, that uh, even having you know representation would not cure. But for again, to fully uh, or to give. Uh, DC, the rights of statehood, right? Again, with all of the constitutional protection under the Tenth Amendment and other doctrines that that guarantees. Um, so, I agree with everything she said.
2: Well, and, and uh, even oh, COVID right. vaccines, we we didn't get enough COVID vaccines in DC because we were treated as a territory and not a state. What, 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 and for
1: explain, please. right? And for COVID funding, actually, if that's it. <laughs> Yeah so I I mean we mentioned this in the piece that while so uh so if you think about not just covid but housing affordable housing a host of issues for which states and educational equity for instance for which states receive federal aid right mostly dc is, is treated as a state but as we saw for the purpose of receiving federal uh, grant under the uh, the COVID relief of last year, D.C. was treated more like a territory. It received less aid than other states um, did, even states that had equal or less population numbers. So um, that's another thing that I guess theoretically to have a representative could fix that, but we know that, uh, that that's... Um, uh, necessary but not sufficient to ensure that DC and its residents are treated with the respect um, that they should be across a number of areas that make states, um, you know, uh, survive and flourish <laughs> uh, with federal aid um, across a number of dimensions that we all care about, whether it's health, education, or housing.
0: Professors Sheila Foster and Meryl Chertoff, uh, Georgetown University, I want to thank you for joining me today on The Public Morality. Much appreciated, and thank you for your insights.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you so much.
0: The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at byron.publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast The Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm... Byron Williams. <laughs>